after the uh, video that they showed earlier, I'm uh, terrified to sit down and uh, <laughs> I don't think I'll be saying, give me a click or something like that. You know, it was funny. I was, an, I was an associate pastor for nine years in Detroit back in the 90s. And, you know, we used to be, we were merciless with our senior pastor. We, we'd imitate him and, you know, in a loving way, make fun of him. And we didn't, we couldn't do videos back then and, and stuff because, you know, we, we didn't have that technology to do the home ones like that. But, but we were pretty merciless and, and we loved the guy, but it was just fun to imitate him. And, and now it's coming back to bite me uh, big time. And so... <laughs> I, uh, when I saw that video, I didn't see it until two days ago. They don't ask me if they could do that because the answer would be no. And uh, so I saw about two days ago and they, hey, can we show this? And I thought to myself, you guys have way too much time on your hands. I mean, <laughs> who's managing you? Because it's obviously not me. And, you know, but I, I, it was fun. I, I, I love it. And, uh, you know, the, we have great pastors here at our church. They really do love you guys. They love God. And uh, I think they love me. And so... Uh, I know they do. I have never done a Father's Day message, never. I've been a, an ordained minister for oh, almost 25, or more over 25 years now, and I have, I've never addressed Father's Day. And I was trying to think this year why, and I, I think a lot of it had to do is that when I first got saved and became a Christian and started going to church, I found most Father's Day messages in one of two veins. Either one, they were just super sappy. Like, I just thought, that, you know, what they said just wasn't very meaningful. And, you know, it was just, oh, dads, you know, dads this, dads that. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, they weren't even memorable. And then the second thing was is that if they weren't sappy, uh, they were just really down on dads. I mean, the general gist of a Father's Day message in some churches I went to was, was essentially, come on, Dad, you stink, get with the program, rise up and be men. And, and, I, and I thought to myself over the years, you know, can you imagine if we did that on Mother's Day? <laughs> I'd be sleeping on the couch for a month. I mean, I, it just we wouldn't do that to mothers, and so I've always kind of avoided the Father's Day thing. And, and yet, I, as I thought about it this year, I thought, and I'm the one that said, let's make a big deal of Father's Day, is that um, I, this is a day our culture sets aside to uh, talk about fathers. And here's the real point. God does have something to say, uh, specifically, as you're going to see, about fatherhood. And at the end of the day, it's not sappy, and it doesn't get down on fathers. And so I'm really actually very excited to share the word with you today. You guys got to remember, I'm a pastor and a theologian. I'm not a poster child for fathering or fatherhood. I just love my kids and my wife. And so I'll share with you some of those experiences. But we're going to confine ourselves, as we always do here, to also what God's word has to say to us. And I can't wait for you to see uh, some of these things here. So uh, as our campuses and venues join us, let's all bow for our time in the word. Father, I do thank you for this day that our culture has set aside to uh, focus on this idea of fatherhood. And as we're going to see today, Lord, in this message from fatherhood to fatherhood, uh, you have something to say to us, uh, a lot of things actually, about this idea of what it means to be a father. So as we dig in your word now, God, may you give us wisdom and insight by the power uh, and illumination of your Holy Spirit. And God, may we understand what you have rightly said and then apply it diligently to our lives. Encourage us today, God. Uh, for those of us who are fathers, for those of us who aren't, uh, may we be encouraged about what you might have for us in the future. And Lord, for us ladies and girls among us, God, may uh, you teach us something about the men around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. amen. 
So I do have good news and, and bad news when it comes to uh, where we're going to go over the next 30 to 35 minutes. The, uh, the bad news first. The bad news is, is that as I share with you what God's word says about fathering, I'm telling you, it's going to act not only as a huge challenge to us fathers, but initially, if I don't miss my guess, you're going to feel an immense pressure. Because what God's word lays out about fathering, at least for me, I thought, oh my gosh, really? That, that feels like even more pressure on my already pressure-filled life. But the good news is, is that as you hang in there with me, you're going to find that what seems like a good pressure is actually going to become a good friend to you and will help you be a more better and godly father. And so let's dive right in. Here's our starting place today, what I think is going to seem like somewhat of a pressure for some of us men. And that is that in a nutshell, what the Bible says is that the key to becoming a better father is to learn and imitate the ultimate father of us all and learn to master some of the traits that makes him such a great father in our own lives as well. In other words, if you were tracking with that very long sentence, what I'm suggesting is, is the Bible says to be better fathers, you gotta become more like God. And when I have recognized that over the years, again, for me at least as a man, that feels initially very pressure-filled. I mean, tell me I have to become more like God in order to be a better father. Well, okay, that, that sounds very ominous. It's like what Jay Leno joked about years ago in one of his comedy routines when he said, you know, can you imagine being one of Jesus's brothers and having your mom say to you, why can't you be more like your brother Jesus? <laughs> and and then, then Leno said, well, he's God, mom. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big thing to rise up to. And, and it's in the same vein is that God basically says men to you and me that to be better fathers, we got to become more like God. The Bible has a word for that. It's called being godly, godlike, if you will, in some of his traits. Uh, but we're also going to find, and here will be the good news, that the key traits that God does ask us to imitate from him, you're going to find are very attainable, especially if you have any humility in you and any faith in you that's willing to do life God's way. So uh, here, here's what I mean by this. Let's dive into our text this morning. The text I selected for us is two verses found in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. Ephesians, you might remember, is a epistle that Paul wrote, six chapters long, and Paul is halfway through the epistle here in chapter three, and he's about to break out into a very personal and powerful prayer. And yet, as we look closely at this, you're gonna see it's a prayer that speaks to fathers as Paul addresses the father of us all. So look at how it says that, or begins this prayer in verses 14 and 15 of Ephesians 3. Paul says, so I fall on my knees before God the Father, from whom all fatherhood, earthly or heavenly, derives its name. Let me read that one more time, because we're going to parse this out, but you're going to want to let this sink in. I fall on my knees before God the Father, from whom all fatherhood, earthly or heavenly, derives its name. And I gotta tell you, gang, this is a very rich passage here. Uh, Paul begins by obviously telling us that he's kneeling before God 
the Father. Let's just be clear on who that is. It's God. <laughs> uh, there's a trinity of God, but it's three persons in one God, one being, and God the Father is just as much God as God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. So he's kneeling before God. Let's be clear on who that is. The maker and sustainer of all we that we see and do not see. The all-knowing, all-powerful one. He's talking about the God who can see everything, he can do anything, he's existed for all of eternity. It's God the Father who sent Jesus to this earth to die for our sins. So this is who Paul is kneeling before, the almighty God, and this is who he's praying to. And the reason that's important to see that backdrop is because then he adds what almost seems like a side note, but I would suggest to you it's a very big side note. He says, from whom all fatherhood, earthly or heavenly, derives its name from this God. Now, let's break that part out here, fatherhood and derives its name. There's actually something going on here in the Greek that you need to see because there's a play on words here that, that, that becomes very, very much a, an insight and a challenge to us. When Paul says, I kneel before the father, that's the Greek word pater. And it's a very common Greek word. It appears over 360 times in the New Testament alone. Just like the word we use today, father, that's the best translation. It means somebody who is biologically or by position uh, it, providing watch care for a family. That's what fatherhood was back then. That's what it is today. So we get that. But then when he says, I kneel before the Father from whom all fatherhood derives its name, that's the Greek word patria that comes from the same root word here, so pater, patria, and that word literally means lineage from the Father. In other words, it means any offspring that stem from the Father. And this is why, by the way, that most translations, I'll share with you in just a second here why I chose this one. This is why most translations of this passage use the word family, that I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family derives its name because patria refers to the, all the offspring from the Father. It's the lineage of the Father. And yet you're saying, well, then why did you choose the translation you did? Here's why. What most Bible experts point out, and this is why you needed to see both Greek words here, is that there is an obvious similarity in its etymological root between pater and patria. I, I mean, it's obvious in the Greek. And because of this, what most Bible experts suggest, now this is important for you and I in this passage, is that there's an overt emphasis then when it uses patria here to really refer to fathers more than any other offspring. And this is what most of the commentaries agree on when they uh, parse out Ephesians 3 here. So look at how the New International Commentary on the New Testament says it. It says the Greek noun patria is self-evidently related to the word meaning father, pater. And it makes immediate sense to say that every patria is named after the heavenly pater. Likewise, it makes immediate sense to say that every fatherhood is named after the heavenly father. And then they say the relation between the two Greek words is best preserved if father and fatherhood are used in the English. And so now you can see why I chose the J.B. Phillips translation here to, to understand Ephesians 3 because Phillips honors this play on words in the Greek where most other translations don't. 
And it doesn't mean that they're wrong. It just means that they didn't really pick up on the subtlety going on here in the Greek. Interestingly, the NIV version does. It still uses family, but includes a footnote there telling us that it really is a focus here on father. The popular Tyndale commentary gets at the same thing. It says this, it says, God is not only father, but he's also the one from whom alone all fatherhood that there is derives its meaning and inspiration. From God's relationship to his family, we can better understand the ideal for human fatherhood. And so there it is, gang. It's telling us here, and maybe explain more of this passage to us, that, that this idea of fatherhood is integral to what Paul is getting at here, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And even when he uses that phrase, that it derives its name from it, that means it derives its meaning, its inspiration from God the Father. And then it even adds all heavenly beings into this, which most experts take to mean angels. So God's referring to the entire universe here. So add it all up and don't miss the point being made here in Ephesians 3. God is father, pater, and all fatherhood, patria, which means all offspring of the father, but has a unique emphasis on literal fathers here. All fatherhood stems from and derives its entire being from the original pater, the original father himself. So I love how Severian of Gabala, who was a fourth and fifth century church bishop, summed it up in his day, commenting on this passage. He says this, he says, the name of Father did not go up from us, but from above it came to us. And I like that. You see, sociologists studying religion today would probably try to say, well, you see, we have this thing called fatherhood and, and it comes organically because of the way we're made as human beings. And somewhere in history, we kind of projected this idea of fatherhood upon God. That's what some sociologists would say studying religion. The Bible comes along and says, no, it's actually the opposite. <laughs> God existed way before we did. God is a father in the Trinity for all of eternity and we only have an idea of fatherhood because it comes from him. It didn't go up from us, it came down from him. And we get our idea of God, or fatherhood from God. Now, with this understanding then, the obvious question becomes, and hopefully you're ready to answer this now, if it's true that we get our idea of fatherhood from God, and if it's true that we need to pattern our idea of fatherhood from God, then what specifically is it that we learn from God that translates into human fatherhood, right? I mean, if God is, is the quintessential father, the divine prototype or archetype, then all fatherhood comes from him. Then what specific traits of the father bear on this idea of human fatherhood? And some of you are tempted to say, well, all of them. And, and here's my point. You'd be wrong if you said that. Think about it. There are certain traits about God that he doesn't ask fathers to imitate, and I'm thankful. God is all-knowing. Does he ask fathers to be all-knowing? <laughs> no. God is all-powerful. Does he ask men to be all-powerful? No. Some of you men think you are. You aren't. And God doesn't ask you to be. So there are a number of traits that are integral to the Godhead, to God the Father, that he does not ask us as men or fathers to somehow mimic. And so if that's true, then what are the traits, as Ephesians 3 says, that we derive fatherhood from when it comes to God? 
And though, there are, uh, and though I'm sure there are quite a few biblical traits that we could point to, I gotta tell you, for 30 years, ever since I started reading the Bible and thinking a lot about spiritual things, I have always summed up the essential traits of God as outlined in the Bible as three. If there are three overriding traits of who God is, it would be this, and that is that God is love, God is justice, and God is grace. And you look closely, gang, these three traits of God actually collate with the three great movements of God from Genesis all the way through Revelation. You see, God created this world in love. Have you ever asked yourself, why did God create humankind? <laughs> the reality is, he said it was to bring him glory, but it brings him glory through the love relationship that we have with him and with each other. That's why God made this world. So most theologians will tell you he created this world with the hope and expectation of love. But then if you read Genesis 3, the fall happened and we fell into sin. And many people today who don't understand spiritual things will say, well, what's the big deal? Why couldn't God just turn a blind eye to that and say, I forgive all of you? Well, there's a reason for that. And that's that he's a God of justice. And if he was anything else, it would be scandalous. He's a God of holiness, of right and wrong, of being separate and other than all of us. And he cannot be in the presence of sin, even for a moment, which is why he had to turn his back on Jesus when Jesus was on that cross, bearing our sin upon him because of the fact that God can't even be in the presence of sin. He's a God of immense justice. But then that brings us to the third movement in the Bible, and that's the movement of grace. John 1, when Jesus came, he came full of grace and truth. Grace upon grace came in Jesus because he took God's love and he took God's justice and he brought it all together at the cross by giving us the forgiveness we needed but still meeting out God's justice because Jesus took our penalty. So I'm telling you, gang, these are the three great movements of God in the Bible and they're the three character traits of God that most define who he is. Now watch this. Then the Bible comes along and says, give me, yeah, I almost said give me another click here. The Bible comes along and, and, and says uh, that, that when it comes to these three traits, that you and I, and I'm gonna tie this even specifically to men and fatherhood, are to now adopt these traits in our lives as well. That if we can't imitate God's omniscience or omnipotence or things like that, we can imitate and apply his love and his justice, and his grace. So isn't it interesting that in Ephesians 3, 19, or 17 through 19, remember we just read verses 14 and 15, so in Paul's prayer, as he's already laid out a kneeling before the Father from whom all fatherhood in heaven and earth derives his name, he then goes on to talk extensively about God's love. It, it, that's not a coincidence, gang. He says, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love, meaning God's love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that you may be, that there surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Why? So that you can be loving. <laughs> so that you can pass on this love to those around you as God has so loved you. And then God does the same thing with his justice. At 1 Peter 1.16, God says, quoting the Old Testament, be holy because I am holy. 
So God is set apart. He is righteous. He is good. And he says for his followers that we need to mimic that as well. We need to live lives of holiness and set apartness and justice. And then in Hebrews 12, he even talks about discipline. He says that basically you discipline your kids and God at times is going to discipline you. Why? Because he loves you. And a good father always mixes love and justice. He tells us what he wants from us. And if we go outside the boundary markers, there's going to be consequences for that. And it's not because he's raining on your parade. It's because he loves you. So you got love, you got justice, and then look at grace, the final one. I mean, this is a no-brainer, but James 4, 6, but he, God, gives us more grace, meaning after salvation, he's still bearing with you, which is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor or gives grace to the humble. And so love, justice, and grace are the hallmarks of God's activity in our lives, And it's how we should function as well. And according to Ephesians 3, and I don't think this is too much of a leap, guys. uh, If fatherhood imitates God's fatherhood, then it has to include love, justice, and grace, right? It has to. I mean, at the very least. And if all this is true, and I think it is, we're now ready to wrestle with what this might look like in our lives today. And and this is gonna be very, very practical for you and we're gonna actually have a little bit of fun, I I think, with this. Years ago, when I was a younger Christian and my kids were all babies and young, I uh, listened to a talk by Dr. James Dobson who was, at that time, and probably still is one of the foremost experts on the family, uh, founder of Focus on the Family, written a lot of books on, on parenting. And I was listening to a talk that he gave and it was a talk on love and discipline when it comes to our children. And in this, Dobson did something very interesting. He compared and contrasted the different generations in America, the builder generation and then the boomer generation and then, and then now the Gen X and eventually the millennials, when it comes to their parenting style in light of love and discipline or in light of love and grace and discipline. And I'm gonna share with you what he shared so many years ago with me in this talk. Uh, but before I do, let me make a couple of caveats because I don't want any emails over what I'm about to share. Uh, the first caveat is that he's obviously speaking in generalizations here, right? So as I share these with you, please don't email me and say, but I know a baby boomer who does it. Of course you do. There's like millions of baby boomers. So the reality is, is that if you happen to know somebody that doesn't fit what Dobson is saying here, chill out. These are generalizations that that, that Dobson has. And I think I'm going to suggest to you that he is right and that it's helpful as we apply this to our lives. Uh, A second caveat here is that he, when he uses the word love, please understand he doesn't mean it in its holistic sense. He was using the word love then as emotional involvement in our children's lives. So love as opposed to the tough side of life, more the discipline. So when he says that one generation might be low on love, he doesn't mean that they don't love him. What he means is that emotional type of involvement in our kids' lives. And he's gonna rate each generation on a scale of love and then discipline using low, medium, high. You ready for this? Here's where he starts. Wait, let's take another run at that. You guys ready for this? Okay, good. I I, I didn't know if you were asleep. So the builder generation, 
which is the generation born before 1946, so as many of our grandparents, some of you as your parents, he would say this, that, that, that they were tended to be lower on love, again, meaning emotional involvement in their children's lives, and very high on discipline. And if you've ever had relationship with somebody from the builder generation, as I have, because my dad is a builder, this resonates clear and true. I mean, think about it. The builder generation went through some of the atrocities in the history of our world that are unparalleled. They went through the Great Depression. We just came through a great recession. That was a hiccup compared to the Great Depression that my dad was born right in the middle of. And then they went through World War II. A half a million people lost their lives in World War II. The entire western half of the world was threatened and thought that their way of life might be shattered because of World War II. And when they came back from World War II, based uh, right off the heels of the Great Depression and started having a lot of kids, that's what created the baby boom generation, I gotta tell you, their concern as parents were not, oh, how are you feeling emotionally? Oh, did you scratch your knee? Oh, you showed up for the sporting event, let's give you a participation award. I mean, that was not, I'm telling you, that was not their mindset. They had a much, they were like, we're lucky to be alive. Hitler is dead. The economy is now starting to grow again. And we have the American dream that we can start building on. So let's get to work and let's build it. That's why we called them the builder generation. And I gotta tell you, my, my dad was of this generation and it took me years to understand him. I, I used to think he was just this stern, mean old guy until I understood that he was born in 1934. His dad died when he was seven. They had to sell the car in Modesto, California just to be able to buy a train ticket back to Peoria, Illinois. Then he had to get a scholarship to college. He didn't have to be paying for it. A scholarship to law school. Oh, and by the way, I had to serve in the Army Reserves because of Korea. I mean, it was just a different world. And yet, I would argue my dad... And I loved to death, had a different way of expressing love and discipline than, than I did. He, he never told me he loved me. I, I never once. Mom did. You know, mom, mom, you say all the time, you, you know your father loves you. I go, well, I guess. I mean, I, you know, it's hard to figure that one out, but I, I'll take your word for it. He never hugged me. You, you know, I mean, it just wasn't his generation. And, and some of you who, knew, who know Builder, again, these are generalizations, know that's true. And he was tough, especially on his boys. I remember when I went off to college, this is a funny story, it's a true story, I'm not gonna embellish any of it. I was going off to Hillsdale College in 1982 and uh, my sister was at DePaul University in Indiana and she was a few years older than me. And I had learned, because we shared things as kids, that she was getting $100 a month allowance back in the late 70s just for being at college to buy like clothes and food and all this stuff. And, and, and my dad was paying for college too because he believed in education. And so I can still remember going down to my dad's office in the basement of our, of our house there in Chagrin, and he had you know, his big desk and all this, and, and I, said, I asked a really bad question. I said, so how much do I get for allowance as I'm going to Hillsdale? And you can see where this is going. And, you know, I mean, what he, what he said next sounds so sexist today, but you got to understand the generation. He looked up from his desk. He said, Jamie, he said, uh, your sister was raised by your mother, and she doesn't know how to handle money. <laughs> wow, you know. I now know why your office is in the basement. And 
And then he looked at me and he said, but you, were you and your brother were raised by me and you know how to handle money and I'm already paying for college, so if you want anything more, go and earn it. And I remember, you know, and again, here's the point. Like, if that happened today, a kid would say, but dad, you never said, but dad, to my dad. I mean, that was a generation where their word was law, and we learned when we were like 18 months old that you did not argue with the old man. There was nothing up for debate at all. And if you did, I mean, it, it would not be a good situation for you. And that's just, again, that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. That was the builder generation, arguably low love and then high discipline. Now, all of a sudden after that, Dobson points out, came along the boomer generation, those born after 1946, and then he's gonna argue even beyond filtering down to other generations. And watch this, what Dobson pointed out is that in reaction to much that happened in the builder generation, the boomer generation quickly became known for high love, high emotional involvement, and yet very low discipline in the lives of their children. And again, before we get to some stories about that, just think about what you know about the boomer generation. Most of you might not realize this, but the boomer generation became the hippies. They became the counterculture movement. And those were the ones that basically said, well, we don't like where culture is right now and we need free love and we need to not work so hard and let's buy a VW bus and go across the nation and just love each other. Come on, people now, smile on your brother. You guys know that song, right? Yeah. I know. And that quickly became, though, I mean, eventually they had to stop traveling around the nation in a VW bus and get a job for crying out loud. But even once they got jobs in the 70s, you know what happened? They started having kids, and their parenting style was drastically different than the builder generation. I mean, here's the quintessential boomer and beyond parenting style, and all of you have witnessed this, and, and we all don't like it, but we all do it. Little Timmy is playing at the McDonald's Playscape. And invariably, Timmy does something mom or dad doesn't like. And so mom or dad yell, Timmy, don't do that again or we're gonna leave. And what happens next? Timmy does it again and do they leave? No. And therein lies the difference. I'm telling you, if my dad said <laughs> that he was gonna do something, he did it. One of the most scandalous things of my childhood for my brother and sister, and we laugh about it now, we weren't laughing back then, was when my parents went away for a weekend when we were in high school, and my dad said, if that kitchen is not spotless when I get back, y'all are grounded for a week. And so we cleaned that thing, we scrubbed that thing, we had it perfect, and my dad's inspecting the kitchen, and he lifts up the trap. Remember those traps that you have there? Lifts up the trap, and there were two Cheerios caught under the trap. And I kid you not, he looked at that and he said, Y'all are grounded for a week. And we cried, you know, we, you know, we couldn't argue with that. We cried foul, and even my mom intervened. My mom said, Frank, that's too much, that's too much. And he looked at her and he said, no, it's not, Carolyn. I told them the rules, they didn't follow them. There are consequences to that. Let me ask you a question. Does anybody parent like that today? I mean, just not too many. That would be an overreaction, even I would say that. But the reality is, is that the boomers took that and we went the other way. We, we really did. And by the way, I'm gonna own this for me. I, I, it's taken me years to recognize this, but, but I didn't parent very well. And this is why I was listening to Dobson years ago on this, because the biggest fights Kim and I had 
was over this issue. I, I resented the fact that my dad was such a tough guy. I didn't understand the Great Depression. I didn't understand World War II. I didn't understand what it means to lose your dad when you're seven and have no money. I didn't understand any of that. I mean, even if I did, I'm not sure I would have bought it, but I, I was so mad at the way he raised me that I said, I'm never gonna do that for my kids. And so I just upped the ante on love. And when you do that too much, and I don't, you get, by love meaning emotional involvement, eventually that discipline thing's gonna wane. Kim eventually, by the time the kids were three or four, said, you're the candy man. And she said, it's making my life really hard. We realized that one day, Abby, I hope you don't mind me sharing this, is hilarious. One day, Abby, who's always been our more extroverted one, was like four, and I was at the church working in Detroit, and, 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 and Mom, Kim said something to Abby and, and, and said, you know, I need you to do this. And Abby said, I don't want to do this. I'd rather do this. And your mom, mom said, no, we're not going to do that. And Abby looked at Kim and said, I'll just wait till Dad comes home. Oh, gosh, man, I came walking through the door, and she was so mad at me. And I'm like, you kissed me eight hours ago. We were good. What happened? And she told me what happened. And I was like, oh, my gosh, we do need help. Because, you see, I needed to learn what it means to parent in a balanced way. What is that balance? This is where Dobson eventually went. If you got, before we get to this, if you got, the, uh, if you got the, the builder generation, which again is low love, high discipline, and then the boomers going high love, low discipline, here's what Dobson says the biblical goal is. And that is to shoot for high love. I mean, keep that love, that emotional involvement high in the lives of your kids, fathers, but make sure that you keep the gas pedal on the discipline. And you don't have to go as high as maybe the builder generation did, but shoot for medium-based discipline. And that will be a great challenge for you guys who tend to want to always go for the high love. Does it, does it make sense? I know it sounds so simple, but, but I got to tell you, at least for me, that was revolutionary. And then in another book I read a few years after that, it actually gave me the three C's of discipline. And oh, my knee just went out. This is uh, helpful here. And that, <laughs> and that is the three C's of discipline are clarity and then consequences and consistency. This was so helpful to me. In other words, you gotta be very clear on what the rules and the boundaries are. And then you have to have significant consequences, at least significant enough, if they break the rules. This is what discipline is. And then you need to be very consistent on it. Which is why when we see Timmy in McDonald's acting up and mom gives the clarity and gives the consequences and doesn't follow through, the kid will figure that one out in a minute, won't he? And again, my kids figured that one out when I was very young. And over the years, I've worked really hard uh, to try to balance out my understanding of love and discipline as I apply it from God into the lives of my kids. And by the time they were teenagers, I think I was starting to get this down a little bit. And, and, and though two of them thank me and one doesn't, I think the third one eventually will uh, for some of the discipline that we set forth that, by the way, at the end of the day, really does make responsible adults. See, here's the problem with us boomers and beyond, guys, is that if you raise children, and we're seeing this all over our nation now, with a high-love, low-discipline environment, they will be irresponsible. They will. And though irresponsibility is not the greatest sin that they could commit, it's not a great way to be productive in society. And it's why one pastor a while back, who's a pastor of a very successful 20-something church, said my church is filled uh, with a bunch of bo uh, men who, or boys who shave. 
That's how he put it, boys who shave. He, he said, that, that's what my church is. Because we have all these 20-somethings playing video games and living with their parents in their basement and other things. And, and again, that, that can have long-term ramifications on our culture. And, and here's my bigger concern, is that we're not giving them God. We're not men helping them understand God's love and discipline and even his grace, all that equaled in their lives as we parent them. And again, you gotta be careful, men. I'm not saying go back right now and just start shaming your kids and turning up the discipline now that they're 22. I mean, you gotta be careful now because there's water under the bridge. But the reality is, is that somehow, especially for us fathers who might have kids like I did who are younger and entering that adolescent stage, uh, there's something really, really, really helpful for me in learning to apply God's ethics in their lives with this love and discipline and then grace. And let me make one last comment on grace and then we'll pray. Even in light of love and discipline, men, don't ever forget this. Everything needs to be undergirded by grace. If you do err on any side, err on the side of grace. Because grace at the end of the day, and some of you haven't found this yet, but you will hopefully, grace is the great equalizer. It really is. Because when justice comes along and says, you get what you deserve, now sit in your pig slop and, and soak it up, grace comes along and says, yes, that is a right verdict, but after you've sat there for a little while, let's raise you to the realm of love and forgiveness and compassion, because that's what your soul is gonna run on more than anything else. Does that make sense? And, and it's funny, because I don't have time to tell you the story, but I've told it before. Even in the midst of my dad's, I mean, low love, high discipline, there were these moments of grace that came through that man's life that have forever marked me as a 52-year-old man. I've told the story at length. You can maybe try to find it in our archives, but I remember once when I was a, about a, about a nine-year-old nine kid and I had a paper route in my hometown, and you know, paper route is a good small business, but I, just to make a long story short, I got way underwater in this paper route. The, the danger of paper routes back then is that you collected all the money from your customers and you owed the bulk of it to the Cleveland Plain Dealer, but if you spent all the money you collected, you had nothing to give to the Plain Dealer. And I figured that one out quickly, and I, and I did well a, a lot of times, but one time I got two months behind. I spent two months of collection from my customers, and I blew it all at the dime store on, on bazooka bubble gum and stuff like that, and, and, and I just blew it all. And I owed the plane dealer at that time, it, it, it seemed like so much money. I, and, and it would have taken me literally a year of profits to pay it off. And I was having anxiety attacks and I was crying on the porch. I'm a nine-year-old kid and I'll never forget my dad walking out on the porch. And he said, what's wrong? <laughs> That's how we always said, what's wrong? And I told him what I did. And he just looked at me with his compassionate eyes. And he walked inside, went down to the basement, got his checkbook, came out. And he wrote a check to the plane dealer for the full amount that I owed him. And then he looked at me and he said, you know, if I had you pay this back, it's going to take you over a year to earn that money without any, any profits at all. And he said, and I think if you did that, you'd probably quit your paper out because you, the wind would just be taken out of your sails. He said, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pay this for you. You can call it a gift. Just don't do it again. And you know, the scandalous thing is a year later, I did it again. Yeah. And some of you are saying, what'd your dad do then? I'll let you figure that one out. <laughs> but I'll never forget that as long as I live. 
And there are times now in my kid's life or even with many of you where I see you suffering under justice. I see you weighted under the justice of your own sin. And I see you broken under it. And again, the world would say, well, you get what you deserve. But you know what God says? God says, I sent my son for that. <laughs> and we need to apply that to each other. Again, how you balance it out with, with discipline and love. Again, I'm no poster child here. Nobody ever asked me to do seminars on parenting, which is why we don't do this very often. But I do love God. And I do love my children. And I love my wife. And I love you guys. And I know what his word says. And my prayer for you, especially fathers, is that as you meet out in your life this idea of his love and justice and grace and just ask him, how, Lord, do you want me to apply this to my family? He'll help you do that because he wants you to be a good dad. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. I thank you for this amazing passage in Ephesians that helps us understand you and even, Lord, how this interplay between you being father and us being fathers works. And God, as we focus on love, justice and grace, the three character traits that, that you've shown us that make you you. I pray, God, that you would help us as men, especially today, and as fathers, uh, to give a lot of thought and even application to our lives in light of these. And God, I pray that as we mimic you, as we imitate you, as we follow you in these areas, that you'd bless that. May our kids see that. May our spouses, our wives see that. And may even our world see that. May they even see something in us that feels to them a little bit like you. And may we give you all the glory and praise for that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen. amen. Happy Father's Day, guys.